I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Chris Wallace, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The head of the CDC begs people to stay home, defends initial testing issues, and talks about lessons already learned. This is the most serious public health crisis that has hit our nation in over a century. I'm Dave Anthony. While more places close across America, it's looking more like Italy, where the lockdown is more stringent after many more deaths. The only stores that are open are grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas stations. If you leave your home, uh, the police may stop you and ask why. If you don't have a good reason, they can fine you up to $800. And I'm Tom Shalou. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Connecticut, West Virginia, Delaware, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Indiana all now have either stay-at-home orders or orders for non-essential businesses to close, joining states like Ohio, New Jersey, New York, and California, telling millions of Americans to stay in except to leave for essential items. There are varying expiration dates, many through at least the first week of April. The White House Virus Task Force has been pushing a 15-day-to-slow-the-spread campaign, but President Trump says he wants to re-examine things at the end of that 15 days for the sake of our economy, saying Monday... The country was not built to be shut down. If you had a viable business in January, we are committed to ensuring the same is true in the coming weeks. In fact, we want to make it even better than it was before. And we're doing things to help in that regard. America will again and soon be open for business uh, very soon, a lot sooner than uh, three or four months that somebody was suggesting A lot sooner. We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. We're not going to let the cure be worse than the problem. The president also said clinical trials are beginning in New York, the hardest hit area, on a drug combination to treat the illness caused by the virus. Hydrochloroquine, an antimalarial drug, combined with zithromycin, an antibiotic. And that FEMA has received millions of masks and other personal protective gear that is being sent to New York and Washington state. Now, some states are not asking all residents to stay at home or for non-essential businesses to close, but cities in those states are, like Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock. Because we do not have enough tests to implement a test and isolate strategy nationally, as has been underway in Singapore and South Korea, governors and mayors have been left with the blunt instrument of stay at home orders. As we know, the CDC's initial virus tests did have some issues, and the criticism is that we lost weeks in testing multiple people for the virus. But the CDC says that was not their job to create millions of tests for the general public. They say it is their job to send the message that people practice social distancing and stay at home if they're sick. People may not realize it, but these guidelines are very, very powerful weapons against this virus. We're not defenseless. Dr. Robert Redfield is the director of the CDC and a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. But in order for us to have these guidelines really work, we need all Americans to do it. And I've tried to, uh, you know, we recognize it's a sacrifice, but I want to have the Americans understand their sacrifice is important. I've kind of suggested, you know, think of your parents or grandparents or your neighbor or co-worker that has diabetes or heart disease or HIV or a child that may have um, cancer. Uh, or another chronic disease like cystic fibrosis, like my son Joey, 
Uh, we're doing this for them. We're doing it for the vulnerable, but we need everybody to do it. So I'd like to encourage uh, particularly the millennials that are on spring break to recognize uh, they're an important part of what, what really is not just a set of recommendations. It is an extremely powerful weapon that we have. As I said, we're not defenseless, but we've got to operationalize it. We all have to operationalize it. And for those who haven't embraced it fully, now is the time to fully embrace the president's coronavirus guidelines for America. Can we talk about those? Because Americans you are thanking are also asking reporters like me, how long is this supposed to last? I know Vice President Pence during the press conferences daily says we're on day six, we're on day seven, we're on day eight of, you know, 15 days to slow the spread. But I'm getting questions from people who think this could go on for weeks, if not months. What can, what can we tell people to give them some hope that there's a light at the end of this tunnel? Well, the first thing I want to say again, and, and I can't emphasize it enough, because some people may feel these are just some phrases. No, this is a, a powerful weapon. We're not defenseless. Uh, and if we all fully embrace these, we will accelerate the end of this outbreak in America. We'll save lots of lives of the most vulnerable among us. And this is why I'm asking everybody to do it. None of us can tell you definitively. The, uh, the initial guidelines are out for 15 days. I think it's important to realize that if the average time from infection to symptoms is about between five and six days, but some of it may be as long as, you know, longer, 10, 11, 12, that as we launched those guidelines seven days ago, the infections that had already happened, we just hadn't seen them yet. And so now as we get into day 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, we, we uh, will begin to start to see the impact of those guidelines. But that's dependent also on the number of American public that actually have taken these to heart and realized that, you know, we're a great nation. We can beat this outbreak, but we need every single American to embrace those 15 uh, days to slow the spread. Um, and, you know, as we reevaluate and see what's happening in, in day 10, 11, 12, 13, I think individuals will be, uh, will, you know, will have more data to be able to answer your question uh, definitively. But I don't think anybody is going to get ahead of that until we watch and see how, how, um, how, how the outbreak is spreading. Doctor, if a lot of people don't, you know, get this virus or suffer with it, there will be a lot of anger over why we shut down and dramatically impacted the economy. But then you look at Italy, nearly 800 people dead in one day. I think that was Saturday. The next day, 650 dead in one day. Is our dramatic response a reaction to specifically what is happening in Italy? This, this is the most serious public health crisis that has hit our nation in over a century. Um, again, at the end of the day, if uh, I get criticized for overreacting, uh, I want to make sure I didn't underreact. Right? This is the most significant public health crisis that's hit this nation in more than 100 years. Tell me, I want to talk to you a little bit about testing, because we're at the point now where we're seeing counties like L.A. County, for example, which has quite a few cases. You know, as of uh, Sunday night, they had more than 400. They're talking about, listen, 
we don't necessarily need to test everybody who has symptoms. And I'm getting a lot of feedback from people who are very upset over testing and what happened with testing. I know uh, Dr. Ryan at the WHO has said, look, the CDC is a world-class agency. We didn't offer them tests. We knew they could come up with their own. And we know at this point that the CDC has conceded. There was some problems with initial testing. What have we learned at this stage now about testing, what happened with it, and the importance of a robust testing system as we see more people are getting tested for this who think they are sick and, and don't have it. They don't have the virus. So it, it strikes me that, that robust testing is important to inform and educate, and yet we, we didn't have it for several weeks. Now, this is the big issue that people get confused at. When CDC developed the test, we developed it so it could run on equipment that the public health labs have. And the public health labs have equipment called thermocyclers that we use for the flu surveillance system. And yet that's a slower, lower, in, you know, lower number of samples you can do a day system. Mm-hmm. What, what was missing and what is now in full uh, gear is there's another aspect of testing, not public health testing, but commercial clinical right. medicine. And that has never been CDC's responsibility. And in fact, you know, the men and women that continue to work tirelessly, you know, when people sort of conflate and say, well, why didn't CDC do that? No, that's really what has to happen from the private sector. And they have to scale that up. And now you see it's been scaled up quite dramatically. Right, the different roles. The CDC is doing more of a surveillance. And you're saying the, 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 the meeting the clinical need is entirely different. But let's talk for a second before I let you go about um, the, the private sector, which we just mentioned. People are talking a lot about personal protective gear for our healthcare workers. And we are still behind on that front. I, I know we hear about private industry trying to produce a number of items, but making ventilators is very different than making surgical masks or hand sanitizers, right? You know, obviously, you know, that FEMA now has the lead along with aspirin. And everybody is, um, you know, I think going all in to try to make sure both personal protective uh, devices are there. CDC's role has been trying to look that if there is limitations, are there other um, ways that these, this equipment could be used to um, protect healthcare workers? That's why we put out guidance on how to reuse, say, N95 masks. Not that we're recommending to reuse them, but if you don't have enough, then you can reuse them. And we're trying to give those guidances out. Um, clearly, um, a lot of work is being done, and this is not in, in the CDC lane, but a lot of work is being done to uh, be innovative now to try to make sure that uh, increase uh, availability of, of ventilators, not only uh, having them, but having them in the right place. And that's really what FEMA is doing. And they really are coordinating uh, not only the supply side of it, but probably the most important part of this is the distribution. We're probably learning a lot of lessons as we go, and I'm wondering, how does the posture of the United States change um, moving forward pretty quickly here? I imagine we are going to want to have a bigger stockpile. We are going to want to have a different plan, uh, a, a more ready plan for illness, for, for pandemics moving forward? What, what sort of lessons do you think we're learning right now or that the CDC is learning? Well, I think the most important one 
is that when it comes to public health, this is something you need to overinvest in, not underinvest in. Over decades, if you look at any any health system in any state, the public health uh, resources have been underinvested in. I think, if anything, now the American public, you know, it can it can feel it in the flesh that one of the most important things this nation can do is have an overprepared public health system. So, I mean, everyone has been working for several decades on being prepared. Um, I don't think anybody really uh, could have imagined just the magnitude. When I say this is the greatest public health crisis this nation's had in over 100 years, that's not an exaggeration. That's real. And I think we're going to have a lot of lessons. You know, data-data analytics to make sure we can get real-time data. Uh, you know, expanding our public health labs so that they have all of these fancy platforms, not just the one we have for flu, so they can develop their own tests. Getting a public health workforce that doesn't have to choose between contact tracing and just sort of giving up because the numbers are too big. Um, really making sure we have the rapid response funds that the Congress gave us before so that we can rapidly uh, put those resources there and, and, and I believe build a robust global health threat strategy around the world so we can detect, prevent, and um, respond to these outbreaks at their source. Dr. Robert Redfield, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Tom Shalhoub with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. While the number of coronavirus cases closes in on 400,000 around the world, it's almost double where we were a week ago. And no country has been hit harder than Italy. Since the first case there last month, it's grown to about 60 thousand and nearly one in ten of those patients have died at this rate sometime this week the number of COVID 19 deaths in italy could double the amount of deaths they had in china by far the most in the world which is why almost all italian businesses have closed and travel bans are stricter well it's it's, it's been kind of amazing because i was actually in korea when the virus first broke out of china and I watched the South Koreans respond immediately. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich is a Fox News contributor, one of our political analysts, and co-author of a new book, which we'll discuss later. When you walked into a hotel, somebody met you at the door, checked your temperature by putting a, a thermometer that could sense your skin, and if you had a fever, you didn't get in. I mean, this was very early, and so they were very aggressive. I came back here feeling pretty good, didn't think about it, And none of us, at least I didn't know, that there were 100,000 Chinese living in northern Italy and that many of them had come from Wuhan and that there was a a flight between Milan and Wuhan. And so we think that's how the virus got to Italy early. And initially the government didn't realize how dangerous it was going to be. It dealt with it initially as sort of a small-town, local, regional problem. And then, boom, it exploded. In Italy, the only stores that are open are grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas stations. If you leave your home, uh, the police may stop you and ask why. If you don't have a good reason, they can fine you up to $800. Uh, so it's, it's a serious situation. 
We hope that it's close to the peak here. The former House Speaker spends time in Rome because his wife is there. Callista Gingrich is ambassador to the Holy See at the Vatican, formally representing the United States in relations with Pope Francis and the leadership of the Catholic Church, a job Gingrich has held since the Senate confirmed her in October 2017. One of the things that Callista did as ambassador is she worked with Franklin Graham's organization, a Samaritan Purse, and they flew in an entire hospital into one of the hardest-hit towns in northern Italy and provided a 68-bed hospital with 60 American volunteer doctors and nurses. Uh, and that's been pretty remarkable to watch. Oh, they, they set up on Saturday, and uh, they, have, did, they did business from the first hour. So uh, that's been a help, and the Italians have been grateful for that kind of uh, partnership. But I would say to everybody back home, uh, take it seriously. Wash your hands, you know, 10 or 15 times a day and wash them with soap for at least 20 seconds. Uh, and then I would also say practice uh, physical distancing. Uh, here, when you go in the grocery store, for example, they have let a limited number in based on the size of the store. And then people line up outside about six to eight feet apart, and they wait patiently And when somebody leaves, a person gets to go in. And this goes on all day. They have plenty of food. There's there's no hoarding here. There's no no sense of empty shelves here. Uh, They have plenty of food. uh, But you do have to be very methodical in going out and and, uh, going shopping at your local grocery store. Now, Italy has the second oldest population in the world behind Japan. Is that why the death rate in that country is so high compared to others? Yeah, and it's a little bit like the nursing home in Washington State, uh, which had a very high percent of the total deaths in Washington State. Um, If you get somebody over 70, particularly if they're over 80, if they have pneumonia, if they have diabetes, if they have heart disease, any kind of comorbidity makes them very susceptible uh, to dying from the virus. And and that's that's really, that's that's not the only people. In fact, in the U.S., there have been a surprising number of young people who've come down with the virus more than in Italy. But in Italy, the big story had been uh, the number of senior citizens who, uh, who usually had some other problem. Now, at the U.S. Capitol, where the former House Speaker used to preside, things got heated Monday during Senate negotiations over the massive nearly $2 trillion plan to help the coronavirus-infected economy. Republicans and Democrats arguing, interrupting each other, prompting GOP Senator John Kennedy to say... You know what the American people are thinking right now, Mr. President? They're thinking that this country was founded by geniuses. But it's being run by a bunch of idiots. They bickered after the first three members of Congress became coronavirus patients. And several more stayed home in self-quarantine as a precaution prompting Democratic Senator Dick Durbin to say... It is naive for us to believe that that is the end of this challenge to our membership. I implore you to consider the bipartisan measure that Senator Portman and I have offered for remote voting. We should not be physically present on this floor at this moment. We know better. And our staff is subjected to whatever we bring on the floor in terms of viral load. Let's think about this in human terms. Too many of our colleagues and their families are falling prey to this disease, we should change the rules of the Senate to reflect humanity and reality. It's the 21st century. Voting in a remote fashion, as I've suggested with Senator Portman, 
is the best way, I think, to protect us and our families from further problems from the health viewpoint. And that is something former Speaker Gingrich has also been thinking about. I wrote one of the leading experts, uh, Bill Pitts, who was the parliamentarian of the House, said, you know, is there actually any reason constitutionally or in law that we could not have voting by Facebook or Skype or go to meeting? And I would not want this to be routine because I think there's a huge long-term advantage to having the House and Senate actually in session, learning from each other, talking things through, uh, makes it a much more collective intelligence. Uh, So I don't don't want to be in the habit of not being there. But when you have this kind of a, uh, a virus which is contagious, it may well be that they should find a way to suspend the rule. And as long as, you know, you come up on Facebook and they see who you are and they have proof of who you are, then let you vote. I think they, they may get to that. I'm not sure they will, but they might. They don't have to pass legislation to make that happen? I, I, don't, I don't know, but if they have to pass that legislation, I suspect they should do so. Uh, the, other, the other option, which may be what happens in the House, because remember, the Senate's in session, but the House is not. Uh, so there's a possibility if they do reach an agreement that the House will just pass it by unanimous consent and people will not have to come back to vote. Mr. Speaker, you wrote a book that we talked about on this podcast not that long ago, Trump versus China Facing America's Greatest Threat. This virus that originated from Wuhan in China, as we've talked about, does that change the relationship between the U.S. and China? The president keeps calling it the Chinese virus. Is is this changing what already was a difficult time? Yeah, I think it does change it some, partly because the Chinese have been engaged in this outrageous effort all over the world to portray the virus as coming from America, uh, which is just, you, you think about that, that is so crazy and so insulting that I think it really has gotten through to both uh, Secretary Pompeo and President uh, Trump. But in addition, back in 2007, four Chinese researchers published a report and said, look, the, cholera, the coronavirus is in a particular kind of bat in South Asia. That bat is eaten by the Chinese, and this is a time bomb waiting to go off. Twelve years later, the, bat, the, the, the disease jumped from the bat to people. They then had the Chinese government for about six weeks uh, attack the people who were trying to tell them that the virus was out there. Uh, I mean, ridiculed them, disciplined them, uh, took them off of social media. Uh, so... We lost a tremendous amount of time, and the virus spread dramatically while the Chinese government was basically hiding it. Uh, And uh, then, of course, they had to go to a brute force kind of quarantine that was only doable in a totalitarian dictatorship. But So I I think we have a lot of of, of things to be unhappy with them about. In addition, I think for the first time it sank into Americans – that when 80% of some of your drugs are being made in China, maybe that's way too much dependency on a dictatorship that's uh, not necessarily your friend. And I think in that sense that won't change, and people will uh, come back with a much deeper sense of uh, trying to move equipment and move manufacturing out of China uh, to, to simply give us a safer future. Speaker Gingrich... At a time when a lot of Americans are stuck at home in the shutdown of the coronavirus, you have something new for them to read. You have a new novel that is just out. It's called Shakedown. And tell us about it. Well, Shakedown starts from 
a very real study done by the U.S. in World War II about whether you could create a tidal wave by setting off explosions underwater. That was followed up on by the Soviets during the Cold War who wanted to know if you set off a hydrogen bomb, could you create a tidal wave? And so we have, based on these real stories, we have an Iranian general uh, who actually was modeled on Soleimani, the man we killed in Iraq, uh, and a Russian billionaire oligarch come together to, to get an old Russian submarine, put an Iranian bomb on it, and uh, try to get it off of Washington and Baltimore to uh, see if they could create a tsunami to drown those two cities. Wow. Uh, we have two characters, Brett Garrett, who is a, a Navy SEAL, and Valerie Mayberry, who's an FBI agent. They believe this is real. They're trying to stop it. The rest of the bureaucracy thinks it's not real. And so you have sort of a classic American story of the two mavericks who are out there trying to save the day. I think if, if you get tired of worrying about the virus uh, and you're tired of just sitting around with nothing to do, I think Shakedown is a very good, it's like, a little bit like a beach book. It's, it's the kind of book that takes your mind off of what's going on and, and gives you a real feel for uh, sort of a, you know, interesting world. Well, we certainly uh, <laughs> certainly could use a little diversion from all of this and uh, certainly also uh, wish you well with a new book. Congratulations on it. And uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Wash your hands. Avoid sick people and touching your face. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tom Shalou. What's on your mind? Been spending a lot of time at home, and my family's been playing a lot of board games. So I thought I'd review some of them for you. Our favorite games of the week. Chess is always excellent, although my kids tend to treat it like it's a homework assignment. A deck of cards goes a long way. And lately I've taken to solitaire, the real kind. You know, not the computer screen. It's great to hold the cards in your hand. Battleship is a classic one-on-one game. I love sinking my kids' battleship. It's a great feeling. Monopoly has always been a great game. Its main drawback for me is that it takes too long although now we have plenty of time. The other drawback is that it shows you how ruthless your family members can be. I would not want to be paying rent to any of them. A good substitute for Monopoly is Payday, where you stretch your $325 paycheck for an entire month. Kind of reminds me of me in the 90s. The game of life is still nothing like life, but it's a lot of fun. FYI, the new version of the game has new professions, so you don't just have to be a teacher, a doctor, or a lawyer. Now you can be a video game designer or a singer, which, strangely enough, pays about as much as a doctor or a lawyer. I told you, it's nothing like life. Mastermind, a great two-person game, a game of logic where you have to deduce a four-color peg sequence. It's great brain activity. We've also discovered a new game called Mancala, which... The packaging actually says is the oldest game in the world. Now, I'm not very good at that. Either that or my kids are cheating. I can't tell. Well, that's what we've been playing here. Here's wishing you a healthy week. And remember, no cheating, especially when dad's playing. I'm Tom Shalhoub. 
You have been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to Fox News Radio's hourly newscast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, visit foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.